Hey guys, and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. This is Jonathan Gellner. I'm honored to introduce two hitting Twitter legends today in Connor Dawson and Ryan Parker. I love this conversation because we discuss how to teach the swing in both the private and team setting, and a few of the details we go into, how to get our players moving better, what we should be doing outside of the cage to help our swing, and we somehow get on the topic of how the swing relates to ice cream flavors and how Mega Man can help us become better coaches. I had a ton of fun with this conversation, and I think you're going to love it, with Ryan Parker and Connor Dawson. So we are joined by Connor Dawson and Ryan Parker today, so thank you guys so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you for having me, man. Two of my favorite hitting Twitter guys, two of my favorite guys on and off the field, so I really do appreciate you guys you know, coming on the show and going to share a ton of information today. But let's go ahead and start with Connor. And so give us a, you know, a short background of how you got into coaching. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm, you know, just kind of a Kansas kid, played at Lathan North High School. We didn't win much. You know, I wasn't very good. I uh, was able to go to Neosha County Community College, which is really good. Played for Steve Murray, who's one of the best coaches in junior college. He's got a lot of wins, He's been really successful, cares about a lot of his players. When I was there, I didn't get to play much because, again, I wasn't very good. But I had the opportunity to be on the charts a lot. Um, and that kind of helped me grow from a coaching perspective, seeing how I can make an impact without playing. Um, that was, that was a big deal, you know, and, and when Coach Murray told me that I would be a good coach one day, cause I was very interactive and, you know, I made it important to me. That kind of kickstarted everything. Uh, you know, after I got done playing there, I knew I wasn't playing anymore cause I couldn't throw a baseball 90 feet. And so I got with a guy named Dale Reed with KC Bullets, who played, who I played for back in high school, um, in the summers and falls. And he offered me a position with him. And I've been with him since I was 19, 20 years old and been with him and a guy named Blake Isles, who's a high school coach at Lake East High School. And it's kind of just been going crazy from there. Just been a curious guy asking everyone I could questions, you know, and. Somehow I ended up where I'm at right now, and I'm a lucky guy for sure. Well, that's awesome, and I think we uh, we need to record our own segment called Coach Murray Stories. What do you think? Oh, man, I have a lot of them. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, no kidding. He's he's an awesome, awesome guy, awesome Twitter follow as well, and, and he'll tell you tell you straight up like it is. But, uh, but Ryan, so talk to us about your journey and where you're at currently, what you got going on, and, and I'll go into some detail about that. So, uh, much like Connor, I, I was never any good at baseball. Um, I played one year of Division three baseball. Actually, one semester I got through like fall and winter workouts, and I was just thinking to myself, I'm still terrible at baseball, and this is eating up all my time. So, I actually, uh, by my freshman through junior college, I kind of ignored baseball completely, worked in a, like different brain research labs and stuff, but couldn't quit it, and... You know, it turns out being around baseball, working with guys, learning about the game was more fun than, you know, being in brain research labs and, you know, sorting urine samples in a windowless basement, which was my first kind of real job. So I just stayed around baseball. Luckily, baseball people love to talk, love to share information. You know, that was kind of how I picked up a lot of stuff was just asking questions, being that annoying person who was, you know, sliding in people's emails at three in the morning and... You know, I've coached in Texas, coached in Wisconsin, coached in Oregon, South Carolina. So kind of a nomadic hitting coach, but finally getting settled in with 108 performance here. And it's going to be a really awesome opportunity. Oh, absolutely. And and one of my favorite things about you, Ryan, is there's a story that you told me uh, about a one of a, one of our favorite Twitter guys named Steve Carter and how he started really your journey through <laughs> figuring out how the swing works so do you mind sharing that with us yeah so steve carter so i first started getting into looking into the swing and i thought i was just god's gift to earth hitting wise because i knew some very basic stuff you know like oh man the you know we don't actually really swing our barrel down to the ball you know we're not getting our foot down really doesn't really help anything so because i'm you know, I was the case of a little bit of info is dangerous. So I started, you know, I wrote a couple articles that picked up some, you know, viewership. And I went to this random Twitter guy, Steve Carter, you know, saying, no, this is wrong. This is wrong. And 
you know, I emailed him and got into some discussions about it. And at first I was very defensive. I was like, oh, no, I, I can't be wrong. But oh, he just kept hitting me with info. And I was like, oh, yeah, dang, there's a whole lot I really don't know. And I learned a ton just from that interaction. And from there, I just kind of always thought, well, if there's people like him who will help me, I wonder who else I can run into. So that's when I started running into guys like Connor, like Jerry Brewer, like Dustin Lind. Just really smart guys who like talking baseball, and that's been a huge benefit for me. Oh, definitely. And and I think that uh, we could add Steve to, to that as well. And, you know, it's guys that – and social media has changed this just for everybody because it's so easy to share information. And it's so easy to reach out to guys like yourself who I'd never met before and, and Connor and, like you said, Jerry Brewer, Dustin Lynn, uh, Eugene Bleeker, all of those guys who are willing to share information. And that's really grown the game a ton. But let's go ahead and uh, hop into the, you know, fall segment. So let's start in the off season, And I'm going to throw this one at you, Connor, because we haven't heard from you in a while. You can do this in a team setting if you want to or just in an individual setting as well, because I know you, that you've been in both. But what should the fall be? What should we be focusing on in the fall? I, I think it really depends on the different level that you're at. So being at the NAI level at Benedictine and then also kind of at the high school level, I was doing both of them at the same time. And in the high school level, a lot of it was exposure to college coaches. For us, we spend the majority of our time within two hours of Kansas City because that's where 95% of kids end up. Um, so a lot of it is getting guys to understand that they have to showcase everything they have and the best product that they have the entire time. So it's a lot less, in this area specifically, a lot less development-based and a lot more let's put our best product that we can out there, no matter what happens. Like if we need to drag bunt twice to show this guy that, that you can drag bunt, let's make it happen. Let's not try to develop it. Let's just do it, you know versus some of the younger guys at the high school level, it was a lot more developmental. Understanding basically, you know, basic offensive fundamentals, defensive fundamentals, understanding when a third baseman needs to come in on a bunt because they've never probably been taught that. They've just been taught charge. And kind of identifying the weaknesses. Uh, I think that's where we spend a lot of our time in the fall is identifying those weaknesses and getting them to understand some baseball savvy. Now at the NAIA level, it was a whole different story. You know, that's, we're on a time frame for one in terms of just the amount of time we have in the fall to practice with guys. We don't have all the time, like in junior college, uh, we have a shutdown periods. So we've only got a limited amount of time to get guys to understand the basic elements of our offense, the basic elements of our defense, the accepted behaviors we need to have as a program, physical development. A lot of the younger guys, freshmen, you know, we have kids that, don't even never even lifted a weight in their life and they walk in there like a scared puppy, you know, and we have other guys who are bench pressing 300 pounds, you know, it's, it's, it's trying to understand the accepted behaviors, development, what needs to be acquired skill wise in that time period. Most importantly for us, the understanding of offense and defense and getting that basic principle down that way, when they come back in the spring, you know, it's quick review and then we can master it by the time game time comes. So, that was kind of that was that's kind of what I look for in a fall. How much of the onus are you putting on to the players? So are so you're telling them a lot of the different things that they should be doing, and then they have to do a lot of this on their own. Yeah, so we want we want everything to be player driven. We think that kind of helps the general buy in and the general process. And I truly believe that you know once you make it important to you, it now becomes yours. And you know I can tell you that. Like, for instance, a, a Coach Murray rule, you know, we couldn't have facial hair. And that became important to us because we knew that there was punishment after. You know, those accepted behaviors, he made it about us. It was our decision to choose whether we wanted to deal with the punishment or not. You know, same thing goes for the swing, like with our guys. We know that they have they have to acquire certain skills. We have to attack the lowest hanging fruit. Well, they have to establish what they want to work on, too. We want them to be their best coach. In order to do that, that's a two-way process of making sure it's important to us. All of it's really driven by them, even the behaviors and the culture. You know, we can establish boundaries and we can establish rules, but we want to make sure that they're involved in that process too. And we give them that option to, you know, speak out. Tell us what you think about that. And I think that's important. 
Okay, so throwing this question at Ryan, uh, let's talk about the swing and, you know, what should some of our main goals be for the offseason? So, kind of sticking with Dawson. So, he comes from a, you know, team background and that is, I've never really worked in a team setting. So, our answer is going to be a little bit different. One is obviously the easiest answer is always it depends. So, working with the high school kid, it kind of depends where, what their summer was and what their plans are for the fall. So, if you've got, you know, let's say you have a athlete who's, you know, been lucky enough to play in a really high level team. They've done all the big summer circuit stuff and coming into the fall, it might just be, you might just need to do work and just get them healthy, get them feeling good because they might just be running to the ground. Other guys, you're going to need to just get them ready for things like Jupiter. You get them ready for the big WWBA. Other guys, it's, you know, kid who's a high school sophomore wants to play in division one baseball but hasn't really you know shown anything like that that might be the time for him to just really work on horsepower and the eat a peanut butter sandwich drill and live in the weight room you know try and actually get some some mass and horsepower in there uh in the system but yeah the fall is going to be especially early in the fall early into the winter it's gonna be you know tons of, of you know just engine building making sure you know they can handle the demands of the swing. So I know the guys I've worked with in the past are going to spend tons of time in the weight room. So you've got a big area to do movement work in. That's going to be a huge thing for us. And, you know, just making sure your swing is in a place where you can actually do damage. The other thing I would say for the fall is it's going to be a big time for guys to at least establish some kind of game plan. Um, as another coach I've been fortunate to work with, has talked about the first time you do something, shouldn't be the first time you do it so you need to have that plan if you're going to try and crush it in the let's say later in the winter you know you know do the exposure thing in the fall and then all right winter i'm going to hit this weight program this weighted bat work whatever you need to already have that planned out in the fall so for me the fall should be kind of laying the foundation getting things in place and Man, swing wise, this is the time to make change. This is the time to kind of be fearless in your own swing. If you wanted to try and hit like Donaldson, cool. Now's a great time to do it. If you want to try to move yourself, you know, up in the lineup from the six, seven spot, you know, up to a more middle lineup guy, cool. Let's get after it and figure it out. But that would be the big thing in the fall is the time to be fearless and really kind of get after it with your swing and your overall movements. Being able to witness Ryan teach some guys or, or teach the swing to, several different guys this last fall, I noticed that you guys were not afraid to experiment and you weren't uh, afraid to just try new stuff just to try it. But there was always a dialogue after of, okay, so how did that feel? What did that feel like? Talk to me about this. And so when you're having that dialogue with the kids, what are you asking them or what are you trying to help them to figure out what to feel or you know, what are some things that you really look for? Well, kind of probably the biggest thing is literally just how they answer. You know, I need to be on a, as a coach, I need to be on a level where you know, I'm kind of speaking their language. Like whatever they feel is important in the swing, cool. Let's, you know, let's kind of grant them that feeling and then, you know, keep going from there. Some guys are going to feel, oh, I need to feel my back hip do, you know, X, Y, cool. How can we build that into an awesome pattern? Other guys are going to be, oh, I want to feel my middle of my body do this. I mean, there is no, there is no wrong answer in that regard. So kind of the, the metaphor I go back to with guys, when we're, when we're working on stuff, it's like trying to find your favorite flavor of ice cream. Like you're going to find one you like, and then you're going to find one. Oh, I'm not going to, I can't stand this. Cool. All right. We're just kind of funneling down, you know, what's important to you, what's going to help you out in your swing and kind of how we can communicate that best. I like that a lot. And sticking on the subject of food groups, Connor, you mentioned that you guys start with, the lowest hanging fruit. Talk to us about what that process looks like. For us, we established in the weight room that we were going to move better. You know, a lot of times these kids in the weight room, it's very mindless. Walk in and it's chest day, it's chest day, arm farm, arm farm, mix some legs in. But for the most part, it's kind of mindless. And that's not necessarily their fault. It's it's kind of a two-way street there. And and we established from the beginning that we're going to learn how to move better. And that's usually where the lowest hanging fruit involved is being able to move better. Understanding that um, this guy is very hypermobile. This guy is really tight in his torso. Okay, how do we adapt 
his problems in a swing or his throwing or his running, how can we change that in the weight room? And that's usually where a lot of the issues are. So that's kind of the first spot that we look towards. Then we go to some video. And again, kind of like Parker said, we talk to the guys and ask them how they feel. Some guys may feel different things when they're swinging the bat and other things may be important to them. You know, we had a, a sophomore pitcher who was upper 80s arm. Bench pressing and arm form was very important to him because it made him feel like he could throw a lot harder. You know, we had to make sure that that was part of his his workout routine because he doesn't feel like he throws harder. And he doesn't feel like he's prepared when he doesn't get a good bench press in. You know, uh, that's it's everyone's different and it sounds like a cop out. But in order to attack the lowest hanging fruit, we have to we have to make sure that they're moving properly and we have to make sure that we know what they feel when they are in their eyes moving properly and when they're not, if that makes sense. So do you both take them through an assessment before you get started? So I'll, I'll jump in on this one. I've been lucky enough to, you know, last two places I've worked to have our own either really talented strength and conditioning guys or like a one away of an actual biomechanist. And um, that's something that I'm going to turn over to those guys. I'm going to, you know, be a part of it, be, you know, be observing. But I'm going to let the guys who are trained in movement, you know, strength acquisition, you know, getting faster. I'm going to let them run through that. And then kind of I feel my job as a coach is to take the results they find from that. And how does that apply to their swing and their future training? And so, Connor, I know that, that you're at 108 now, but being in a team setting, how did you go about that? Yeah, you know, Benedict, and it, uh, it was tough, you know, at those lower level colleges, if you call it that. You know, the resources aren't as vast as TCU, you know. I'm the strength coach and only certification I got is a CPT test I took, <laughs> you know. And um, in order to really see how well guys are moving, I had to work a little harder and watch a lot of YouTube videos, read a lot of books. Um, we tried to incorporate some um, some of the functional movement screen uh, testing to just get a baseline on some guys, really. You know, we we video the actual actions of their lifting a lot. So we'll take a lot of slow-mo video of them bench pressing or doing a deadlift or doing a single leg RDL. We just wanted to break down what we do. We kind of took it a similar role to what we do on the field. On the field, when there's a movement issue in the swing, we always take a video. Well, why the heck don't we do that in the weight room? So we did the same thing in the weight room along with a couple of functional movement screens, which could be a similar on a baseball field to get some exit below testing or actual, you know, arm velo testing on the mound and kind of attack from there, if that makes sense. So again, it was, it was a little tougher because we didn't have the resources. We just had to work a little bit harder and we had to get our guys a lot more involved too. Again, it had to be important to them as well. Otherwise it was just mindless testing. No, definitely. And you guys both, both mentioned that movement is one of the first things, things that you guys look for. But what are some other common problems that we see with kids? So one of the things I see with kids a lot is just, especially guys who have a little bit of talent, is just wanting to go get stuff with their limbs. You see a lot of, you know, really talented high school hitters who you see a lot of pitch, and the first thing they do is just kind of dive their hands at it because it's, in their mind, easy to control. So a, a lot of the stuff I see with high school, college, basically all hitters is, it's not the ability to use the middle of their body to even put themselves in a good position to launch, much less launch correctly. So that's a lot of the movement stuff we do is just getting guys to feel, okay, this is what, what hinging our hips feels like. This is what the ability to side bend feels like. Just learning to get them to build better positions with the middle of their body and then hold those positions, not just kind of get to balls and stand up out of them would be probably the biggest thing I see with guys. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing for me. A lot of times the torso and the the big part of the legs, they're not really focused on much with, with hitters and pitchers. A lot of times with hitters, you hear it all the time, you know, throw your hands at the ball, use your hands more, check your hands. Well, like I can't walk 50 yards on my hands, you know, but if I can get the bigger muscles and the bigger the bigger systems involved, and I can understand what those are doing. That's going to help me out a lot, too. And I think another thing that I see with hitters that's kind of a weakness is just the 
fear of failure, um, which everyone has that. And I understand that. And, you know, they're afraid to take that new highway that they're trying to build with their skill. And they always revert back to the old one just to make sure that, you know, they make contact or they accomplish even something close to what their goal is. So being able to take the training wheels off is a big deal, too. Yeah, that even comes with testing because testing's not comfortable either, especially when the results aren't there. Sure. And my next question is, and it kind of it goes right, right along with what you guys are talking about with with side bend, is how do we train adjustability and adaptation in the swing? Are there some some drills that we can do, or or is there some different things that we can look for regarding that? This is going to be a giant. It depends. Answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean some basics. So let's assume. Like, you don't know anything about the hitter. I mean, basic stuff. I start with weighted bats and underweight bats are great for that just to see. Those are going to expose, you know, flaws a ton. I've even gotten more towards using those to kind of expose deficiencies rather than just kind of pure horsepower guys up. So mixing bat weights, you can big fan of angle toss, uh, both close and open side. And even just how they adapt to different speeds. It doesn't have to be a huge, you know, velo difference, but... Just changing the environment around them and seeing how they react. But it always comes back to it depends on the individual hitter. Connor, anything to add to that one? Yeah, you know, he kind of said my two big ones. Um, <laughs> the two the two ones that we focused a lot at uh, that we did at Benedictine is velo and location of the ball. Not necessarily location of the ball where it's coming through the zone, but where it's being thrown from or where the machine's coming from. Angle's huge. I absolutely love the angle. You get guys lined up to the middle really easily, and you get guys really uncomfortable, and they have to adapt from there. And then with the velo, I mean, even the slightest change with velo, you change the pitch off of the machine, you go slider machine, and tell guys to go get the ball out front, or you give them a different task. It's a game changer, you know. But again, it's a giant. It depends, uh, as with most things that we deal with. But really, yeah, the environment's Changing the environment and the tools is just, just it's almost a cheat code in terms of that skill development. I gotcha. Now, with angle toss, you guys both mentioned it. Can you walk us through your version of angle toss? Yeah, I mean, as long as you, the, probably the first person to really kind of break angle toss down for me would be Jerry Brewer, you know, back when he was still alive. But um, (laughs) Jerry will go pretty extreme with it and actually set up uh, nets basically where the uh, foul lines would be from you know not too far away maybe 30 odd feet and go from there if you can do that that's awesome most cage settings don't allow that so when i've worked with guys that are just trying to get the nets you know or their screens whatever kind of as far off to the side as you can and then just you know crush different locations from there mixing in weighted bats with that because there's you're very much out of options if you go if you're going close side say the right hand hitter you know, close side, they're tossing basically from up the third base line with a heavy bat. Tell them to pull a ball. If you have a kid who's never, you know, turned aggressively, well, they're going to learn how to there just because they have to try and accomplish that goal. But there's no, I wish I had an awesome answer of, oh, you just put this net here, this net here, and do this number of reps. But it's not that easy. And if it was easy, it wouldn't be fun. At Benedictine, we spent a ton of time doing angle angle work and we only hit on the field uh, we don't really spend much time in a cage and being able to set up the machine you know 45 50 feet away to where that ball just runs into their barrel it makes the task so simple yet complex for the hitter because all they have to do is get themselves lined up to where they want to be and the ball literally runs into the barrel when they're not lined up to where they want to be the ball's not going to run into their barrel. So it, it's it's simple yet very complex. And you can, again, put weighted bats into, into their hands. You can do it from side, like front toss from the angle. And you can have guys just bare hands catching baseballs and understanding where they're at on the catch. You can have them PVC pipe in there and you're hitting wiffle balls. You I mean, you can change the elements. You can change the implement. You can change the ball, whatever you want. But if they're lined up, the ball runs right into their barrel, and good things happen. <laughs> I love it. You mentioned one of my favorite training tools, and I know both of you guys love the PVC pipes. But talk to us about some of your favorite drills that don't involve a bat. And I think Parker mentioned something about a peanut butter sandwich earlier. I don't even know what that means, but go ahead. No, for high school kids, it's 
almost ironic to me that you see, you know, a big problem with a lot of, you know, youth in America right now is kids being overweight. But then you see high school athletes coming to work with you. And I get that you like baseball a lot, Timmy, but you're six foot 135 right now. <laughs> we eat a peanut, hit a home run and then eat a peanut butter sandwich. Just find ways to get <laughs> calories and, you know, into your body. But favorite drills without a bat. Oh, man, that's going to be. That's like a whole different a, segment. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Um, literally, like, in a, with athletes I like working with and who have worked with me for a while, they'll come in and it can be 30, 45 minutes of just prep and corrective work before they ever pick up a bat. And it's just using stuff. PVC is a big one. Resistance bands. I mean, you don't need anything fancy. You can just go to, you know, regular sporting goods store. Resistance bands is creating feels, creating challenges for guys. Med balls are another good one if you have them. Cool. If not, it's not the end of the world. But get creative with it. That'd be my big thing is get in there as a coach and try and, you know, if you think that XYZ is important, try and create a task where you, you know, really feel XYZ. Connor, throwing this one out to you. My favorite one's the deadlift. There's the row. There's the single leg RDL. You know, there's a lot of drills out there that don't involve a bat that are pretty beneficial. And did you just call it deadlift a drill? Yeah, I did. Nice. <laughs> you know, I, I think a lot of it is is movement-based. And kind of like Parker said, a lot of corrective and movement strategies. And I'll take it a different angle and just kind of be different because Parker just said almost everything I would. But he kind of carried on the peanut butter sandwich drill. And, you know, a lot of kids are overweight and whatnot and i like the drill where you go out and you play football in the neighborhood uh and you go play basketball and uh you go be a kid and be an athlete and play other sports i think that's a great drill that can help you hit a baseball bat because you're increasing your kinesthetic and spatial awareness and the more athletic you can become and the more spatial aware you can become better you're going to be and that takes a little bit of a oddball twist onto it but you know, doing things outside of baseball that involve athletics and understanding different variabilities and movement can be huge. Yeah, well, I'm going to jump in real quick because the other great thing, because there are going to be some kids you work with who have played other sports who, you know, they like baseball, but they've, you know, been the point guard in their basketball team for forever. So even knowing stuff like that's helpful, this is, you know, one I uh, stole from Pete Lauritsen, you know, former Iowa coach, now at the Indians. He had an athlete who couldn't, who couldn't feel like a hip hinge. You know, it's the kind of the ability to sink your body down like you're doing a deadlift. And he'd use a deadlift example. It didn't resonate with the kid. But then he looked up and saw, remember, saw the kid was a, uh, before was a first round pick of the Indians was just committed to Duke for basketball. He said, all right, guys coming down the court, you're getting ready to guard him. Are you just going to stand straight up and down? The kid's like, no. He's like, what are you going to do? So he kind of dropped in like he was going to, you know, defend the guy. And there you go. Pete taught him how to basically kind of load the middle of his body without, you know, using one baseball term. I love that. And, you know, something that's been really helpful for me as as far as swing changes go is, and the reason I asked the question is getting them to take the bat out of their hand. Because once they, once they get the bat back in their hand, it feels like they fall into some of the same patterns that they did in the first place, just because they've been doing that for so long. Uh, do you guys see that as well? Absolutely. You know, they're, again, they're trying to, they're trying to develop and build a brand new highway. Yet that highway takes a lot of time to build, you know, you know, if I could go down I-35 to get, come down and see you, it wouldn't, it's the same time thing every single time they build a new interstate that's faster. I'm going to have to put on Google maps because my route's different, you know, and, and that's where it all comes back to. It becomes uncomfortable for them to translate some of these movement patterns. And at the same time, their body is still uncomfortable where they may not necessarily express the uncomfortability, but it's there internally because it's so much different, you know, and taking the bat out of their hands allows them to feel so much more. It's like taking your shoes off, you know, you, you take the shoes off of a kid and let him go to the cage. It's a whole different monster because he now feels what's happening with his feet. He's feeling the way he's gripping the ground and that alone can change the idea of a swing and you don't even need a bat to do that go through your swing with no with no shoes on it's a whole different feel again you're changing the stimulus you're changing the environment at that point yeah i don't even add on to that so a lot of kids 
I mean, Connor, you're working, you know, you're working with usually older guys, high school, college guys. Same thing. And these kids, you know, even though sometimes we won't believe it, they've put in tons of work on their swing before they ever showed up to us. For sure. And so they've just, you know, you as a coach, you've got to respect that because they've got, you know, a little, little bit of a kind of an emotional attachment to what, you know, in their mind is their swing. Just the baddest part of that. So it's kind of, they're always going to default back to that because that's what's comfortable for them. So just getting them first off to em- almost embrace being uncomfortable with so many of the different, you know, implements we can throw in their hands, like weighted bat, light bat, PVC pipe, med ball, whatever. And just getting them okay with, all right, I can change my swing, you know, with my normal bat because I've felt it in these, these other areas. I can, you know, shed that emotional attachment a little bit. Oh, definitely. You know, I think that's why constraint drills are so important because you're you're basically helping them change their swing without them thinking about it. But also it goes back to what we talked about at the very first of our conversation, and that's having a dialogue. If you don't have a dialogue mm-hmm. and you're just trying to tell a kid, hey, you need to do X, Y, and Z, then like you said, they've had their swing longer than they've had you as their coach. And let's also not forget, remember, like, was it a couple of years ago, The you know, America couldn't decide if a dress was, you know, uh, what was it blue or gold? Blue or gold. Yeah. And it was right. blue, by the way. <laughs> All right, so there's that. But we're supposed to agree on a highlight. We can't decide what color a you know a freaking dress is, but we're gonna all agree there's one swing and there's one way to communicate it. Yeah, okay, chief. And I think that's important too, from you know the player and the coach perspective. A lot of times the players get trouble because the coach doesn't think that he's oh, he he's not listening. Blah blah blah. And the Player, oh, coach doesn't care, blah, blah, blah. Again, the dialogue, how we can present the things that we're trying to say and how we can present the communication, that's that's the biggest part. Well, and I'll, you know, I'm as guilty of this as anybody else and wanting those changes to come so quickly, but a coach, you know, X or whatever wants them to do this and they don't change it within a couple of days and they're like, man, you're just not listening. But the same thing, we coaches need to understand how hard it is to make those mechanical changes. It's like us going from you know, trying to write right-handed and then just one day just saying, hey, we got we got to try it with our left. It's going to take us some time to do that. So we as coaches need to keep that in mind as well, and I'm as, as guilty of that as anybody else. But let's talk about developing within a team setting. So we have built our motor in the offseason, and we've made the needed swing changes. But talking from a coaching perspective, when you've got you know 20 to, 20 to 30 guys that are trying to hit every single day and you can't coach them up the entire practice and Connor I know you've been through this and and Parker you're getting into this as well so what's your best advice on how to how to still develop them with 30 other guys with them you know I keep it keep it free and open Um, something we did at Benedictine which I loved was we had a totally different practice for offense you know we had offensive practice for two hours a day And we had defensive practice for two hours a day or an hour and a half or whatever it was. And we would split it up to where we had our, you know, our 18 hitters or whatever. We'd have nine for an hour in this group, nine for an hour in the other group. And we would go double barrel machines or double barrel BP. Our goal is to get them 100 swings a day. And within those 100 swings, they have the ability to stop at any moment and ask questions. They have the ability to talk to all their guys on the team. It becomes almost an a town hall meeting for, for, for hitting, you know, and the open dialogue is, is great. That's, that's, that's a beautiful part of it because again, we've already tried to make it important to them. We have given them the opportunity to have a time slot to where a small group of them can hit with two coaches and get a hundred swings in an hour and have open and free dialogue for whatever they want development wise. And we can spray, you know, we can put some things in here and there too, you know, Parker? Yeah, I mean, I've never really seriously worked in a team setting, so I could provide a bunch of nifty-sounding hypotheticals, but no, nothing concrete to what to what Dawes can provide. So on this one, I'm just going to observe and nod my head and say yes. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All right, so we're skipping past the off-season and getting getting uh, into the in-season. What should training look like, and what sh- how should it differ from the off-season to the in-season? Parker, we're going to start with you. So again, that goes back to kind of the first thing I talked about is having a plan beforehand. So some of the kind of older, more experienced guys I've talked about is, all right, when the season starts, you know, I want to be able to warm up and feel these 
three things, whatever those two or three things are, and then just you know letting it be driven by them. This is not really the time to make a massive you know swing changes. This is time to, again keep them feeling good, you know, keep them you know confident in what they can do, and that's again why the off season becomes so important. And so we're not trying to scramble, you know, that we've built that foundation that they can go back to, but in season. Again, it's just don't sweat it. Like, don't feel the need because you went 0 for 3 to come in and take 5,000 swings the next day. You know, trust in what you can do. And that's about it. My biggest thing would be have a game plan before anything. Just so you're not trying to panic that you went 0 for 3 and then panic that you don't have a way to combat that. Because now you're just digging yourself deeper. You know, I think, you know, the in-season time is the time to master the offense. And everybody's got their own different offensive philosophy, and that's great and fine. But it's that's the time to you know just run off the run off the offense the way that you planned and you practiced over the off season. Goes back to Parker's deal. Did you follow the plan that uh, you had set with yourself, or you had set with your coach to try to become try to come into the season at top performance? You know, the in season time is not. You know, you got to win ball games, and as much as everybody hates to talk about it, coaches' livelihoods depend on that. Player scholarships rely on that. It's it's about winning ball games and doing your job, and that's the time where we get to master the different dynamics that are involved in us doing our job and winning ball games. And if things don't go right, we just have to understand that we have to trust the training that we did. And we have to trust the plan, trust the results. It's all going to work out in the end. And as long as we knew that we put our best, our best plan and our best effort out there, it's, we just got to make it happen. You know, it's, it's time to win ball games. Well, that makes sense. Now, something that, that we've been messing around with a little bit, and that's pitch recognition and vision training. Uh, is this a good time to do this? One and two, are there any specific examples or ways that you guys do that? So I said, yeah, again, that wouldn't be, you know, that would be a, a solid time. So a lot of the stuff um, I would go back to for this would be um, a line of research called decision training. Because a lot of the, the vision stuff is tough for me as a coach because there's so much conflicting info out there. Mm-hmm. And while there are so many, you know, products and apps and whatever, you know, that promise good results, at the end of the day, there's our, you know, their products. They're trying to sell you something. So of course they're thinking it's going to be the latest and greatest thing. So with guys that we've in season stuff, working on, you know, vision stuff, it's a lot of just decision stuff. Like you even just putting guys on, let's say you're going to have a BP round and all you're going to do here is uh, you're only going to try and only going to swing at pitches that you can hit for an extra base hit. So if you're just mixing it up off speed and you're seeing guys chase breaking balls and stuff, not a good time for that. One of the, I'll kind of, I'll give away a, drill that we go back to all the time is a uh, drill that apparently John Carlos Stanton does found us in an interview because dude looks like the Terminator. He knows he's not seeing tons of back-to-back fastballs. So he'll have a pitching machine set up to where he where it's throwing like 80% breaking balls and sneaking fastballs in there. And if you know he sees that breaking ball spin, he just shuts it down. Hmm. If you've got a coach throwing the way we've run it with guys... Is basically saying, all right, you have endless, your round can be as long as you want here under a couple stipulations. One, if you, if it's a fastball, just get your best swing off at it. If you miss it, who cares? Keep the round going. If it's a breaking ball and you don't crush it because we don't want to punish guys, you know, for seeing a hanging breaking ball from BP coach and hitting it a mile. If you don't crush it, your round's over. So you get guys learning just to get their swings off on a fastball and then breaking ball being sure they're not they're either just spitting on it or they're putting it in the, uh, you know, in the second deck. So it all comes back to me more, less, less vision and more decision work. I like that a lot. Connor, what do you got? You know, the, the vision stuff, I've read a lot about it. That stuff is way over my head and I can't even see, like I have like the biggest glasses in the world. So I just stay away from that. And I, I go more towards the decision training aspect of things like Parker said. Uh, something we did at Benedictine, which was one of my favorite drills, and it was easily the toughest, toughest thing we ever did for our guys. We did what's called the two-headed monster, and we would have both machines set up side by side, and one coach is on each machine, and we're going down at the same time. One's a fastball, one's a breaking ball of some type, could be a slider, curveball, whatever, and only you know only one ball is being dropped. 
don't know which one until until the ball is put in the machine. And you know, we'll have rounds where it's very similar to what Parker said. It's you know, hunt the fastball. If it's fastball, get your best swing off to the middle of the yard and try to hit the ball over the scoreboard. You know, or breaking ball you have to take, or we'll mix it up to where we may go. We're trying to hit two fastballs this round and two breaking balls this round. Understand what you're looking for and try to get your best swing off for each one. So that way it now becomes a decision aspect for them. We're giving them within that time frame or however many pitches, hey, you got to hit two fastballs and two breaking balls. Which ones are you looking for? And that's on them at that point. So it takes the decision out of our hands and also in, into theirs. So uh, that's that's a really fun one for the players and the coaches. Both people get frustrated and both people get super pumped up when things go well. <laughs> right. No, I like that term a lot, the decision-making. And that's that's essentially what we're trying to get them to do better and faster in season. So I really like that. I'm going to be stealing that. So let's talk about your own personal growth. So what's, and I'm going to throw this to Connor, uh, what is something that you've learned lately that you're really excited about? Video overlay. And it's not that I've learned about it because I've seen, we've seen video overlay for a long time. And when the guys at Driveline brought that video out of how simple it is, we at Benedictine, we like latched onto it, like from a hitter's perspective and a pitching perspective it helped our guys a ton because some of our guys are you know maybe not as good at ball flight reading as others so they kind of base out of their swing off time and it allows them to see if they're starting at the same time against the same pitcher while we're doing scrimmages and which way is our body going where's our direction and the hands going this way the body going this way torso what's the action it's just freaking cool and that's that's been a huge huge difference and it helps us to in terms of seeing movement quality of guys, you know, if we continue to see the same movement problem over and over again, and these video overlays, or we see that this swing is the same pitch right down the middle, BP fastball, and he did it really well, and the next one he did it really poorly, well, where's the breakdown at? And it allows us to check both videos and try to pinpoint the breakdown. So video overlay is cool. <laughs> Got it. Parker, what about you? So. Mine's not going to be near as fun as Dawes's. Mine would be more simple as kind of when you introduce kind of certain instruction or certain constraints. Because kind of the basic pattern I've always operated, not always, but recently operated under is, all right, guy shows up. He's going to, you know, do his, do a general warm up. He's going to do his prep work. Then we're going to hop in a cage and get after it. So one of the things we've started working with, with guys is, all right, you know, still come in, warm up, get feeling good. But then trying to attack some of the specific swing flaws they have, because let's nobody likes to mess up in a cage. As much as we all talk about embrace failure, whatever, 16, 17, 18, 19 year old kid, they want to get there and, you know, crush baseballs. So rather than, you know, try and design a new constraint rather than whatever, we've started getting guys, we stretch out, get some cage work in, and then almost blending kind of that prep and movement work almost instead of before the session, kind of within their training. So if you have a guy struggling to hit, let's just say pitches low in the zone, rather than trying to put him in a new maybe stance constraint or, or have him choke up on the bat, both of which are pretty easy and in my mind effective constraints to help guys. This is all right, we're gonna put a two minute pause on this and we're gonna head over to our movement area and we're gonna attack that field right now. It kind of goes back to getting the bat out of the hands. But it's just one of the biggest thing for me is when we introduce that idea and training, letting things be a little more fluid rather than kind of scheduled out within the session. Well, that makes sense. So talk to us about some of your favorite resources, books, programs that you guys have gone to, gone back to again and again, or really have shaped your coaching career. I mean, I think the biggest one is find a group of, of like-minded coaches and talk with each other all the time. I mean, myself and Dawson DM group with what, Four other coaches, all at various levels, right? Yeah. And how, that group goes back, what, like three, four years at this point? Something like that. <laughs> um, just find, you know, and that's, again, what social media, what that's great for is find a group of like-minded coaches or even guys you disagree with and just communicate. The other thing, 
for me, I, I people think I'm kidding when I say this. The most influential thing that I've seen in my coaching career is a 20 minute long animated profanity filled video about the level design of Mega Man. <laughs> you can just look up Mega Man level design on YouTube, and it's like a 20 minute long video, where it just goes into all about you know how to teach. In their case, you know people who play video games how to teach them new skills. This is a huge light bulb went off for me of, oh man, we could do this with athletes too. As far as other good resources, I mean, any textbook wise, probably my favorite researchers would be, uh, Ian Renshaw. He does a lot of stuff with constraints work in cricket, who most of his stuff now you can get for under a hundred dollars. Keith Davids is kind of the godfather of him and Carl Newell are of the kind of constraints led approach for athletics. And that's about it. But just keeping your, not being so, one track because we all go down that kind of you know mechanical rabbit hole of just hours of video hours of slow motion gifs and all that's great you can you know definitely get info out of that don't be afraid to kind of expand your horizons and learn from other places and apply that to baseball as well i love that connor what do you have you know there's there's a lot of influences out there all the really good coaches and all the really bad coaches that i've seen in my personal opinion have shaped what I've seen or what I, what I've done now. I've been able to coach at a lot of different levels from, you know, 5A high school in Kansas where we won a state title to summer and fall program to NAIA. And there's a lot of really good coaches that you can just observe and learn from. And there's a lot of really bad coaching that occurs on those fields too. So being able to understand what I consider is good and bad has been huge for me. A lot of times with the, as a young coach, it's really hard not to just regurgitate everything that you've heard in your life. And it's, you, you have to create your identity and your philosophy and what you personally feel. And being able to see good and bad coaches at all those levels has been huge. Uh, coach Everman at Benedictine, Coach Hilker at Benedictine has been, they were amazing for my development as a coach. You know, Coach Ev has been 16 years at this at college coaching and he's been at Virginia Tech, K-State, Ferrum College, Division Three. you know, he's been at Benedict and NAIA, he's been at Arkansas State and D1, he's been at uh, Garden City Community College, at JUCO, like his, his experiences and him sharing his growth was huge for me and Coach Hilker was a Division One shortstop who's now a pitching coach who had to learn every single thing he could about pitching. Just being around people who really work hard has been has been very, very big for me. That's awesome. I love those answers and, and you're right. You know, just be when you read a book, there's no dialogue. So again, back to our very first thing that we talked about is just having a dialogue with the player, but also being able to dialogue with other coaches and sometimes being told that you're not as good as you think you are is always you know, it's it's something that, that hurts, but it does make you better. So talking about kids what is the one thing, or maybe give us a couple things if you've got them, but what's one or two things that whenever you say, hey, we're going to do this today, your kids just, they absolutely love it? Anytime you have front toss involved, every kid in the world loves front toss because uh, they just get to hit nudes. They love that. <clears throat> one thing weight room wise that every kid seems to really like is any sort of competition based aspect. Like I know in the weight room as a, from a team setting, it's really difficult to sometimes have either the time or the resources to create some sort of competition. But when you tell a kid that we're doing a competition and in reality, like my perception is, man, that stinks. That does not look fun. They love it. You know, any outside of baseball competition is awesome. They love it. Uh, we used to do, we did these things at Benedictine where. It would be like team competition extravaganza is what we would put on the practice schedule and the guys would love it. And we would have like medicine balls and a couple of buckets and we'd split the guys up into teams of four and make them kick the ball or throw the ball. And they had to come up with a strategy to get the ball from point A to point B within the rule set. And it was purely focused. It was purely strategy. We gave them all the options to do it. And they freaking loved it. And that's way better than doing something like 27 ounce. <laughs> no kid in the world likes to do that. But when you create the competition to where it's different from what their norm is, that, you know, gets them all perked up. Yeah, I'm going to say the same thing. Kind of how we called it was 
you know, we just spent so much time working on some of the technical aspects. You know, we'd have days where it's like, all right, show up, feel good, and show off. One is getting them in that mindset, like that, you know, what they're doing is, you know, worth showing off is fun in and of itself. Just helping them, you know, build some confidence even in cage setting. But probably the most fun one for me that got to be a part of was what we would call Yankee Stadium rounds. So how we would set it up uh, with kids. We'd say, all right, you're at Yankee Stadium. You're playing for the Red Sox. You've got 50,000 just obnoxious New York Yankees fans just in your in your dome saying those awful things to you. You get one swing to shut them up. And so we would have groups of like, usually we would combine this. We'd have groups of like six to eight people of, you know, all ages. And the thing was, if you hit it and shut the crowd up, cool, you get to do it again, but you got to use somebody else's bat or somebody else's stance and try and do it again. So this was hilarious because we'd have like, you know, professional guys in the offseason or D1 athletes hitting the ball, what they think well, and then having like an 11 year old kid chirp up in the background. Next. Nope. <laughs> uh, That's so awesome. yeah. So letting it be a competition and then letting the, you know, letting the, letting their peers judge that. Did that sling actually shut the crowd up or not? It's just, you know, a very easy thing. We usually, again, save that for the end or, you know, if we're going to have what we call show off days, we'd give them like a day's notice. So like they already would, you know, that's the day they're, they're showing up in like sleeveless shirts, just, you know, <laughs> ready to go. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. And it makes it fun. And I don't know if you guys have noticed this or not, but whether they're 28 year old veterans or 11 year old kids, baseball players are all the same. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So my Tim Ferriss question. This one, I'm going to throw it at Parker first because I have a feeling we could have a long list here. And the reason I say this is because I don't think anything Parker's bought has been more than 20 or 30 bucks. But what's, <laughs> <laughs> what's the most useful coaching tool you've bought for less than $100? I mean, I didn't buy it, but the training rock was pretty useful. Oh, um, <laughs> put some quick background on that. Uh, um, literally, a rock fell off a truck in the parking lot of a place I used to work. And it broke off at this nice, like, 45-degree angle. So we were using that for, like, back foot challenges with guys. So we literally would tell kids to go get the training rock. That's the most um, Parker thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> um, but <laughs> implement under $100. I mean, PVC pipe, just, you know, go to Home Depot, go to your local local hardware store. Rolls of athletic tape for bat weights. Like I said, bands, the whole thing. Like, if you're willing to get creative with it, you can do it ton of damage for under a hundred bucks but i'm trying to think of like the one specific thing and again probably uh pvc pipe and band i know i kind of chickened down and gave you two things there no it's all good love it most of our listeners are coaches anyway so we're always looking for our own training rocks i guess you could say yeah and i would say the fitness clearance section at any sporting goods store is a gold mine for random things you can come up with to use to help hitters I love it. Connor, do you have anything else that we can add? A notebook and yeah. uh, that should leave you that should leave you some money left over for like the nicest pen <laughs> on the planet too if you want. The ability to use a notebook and write down what you think and you feel is a whole different dialogue that you can have within yourself that can transform your entire mindset. Notebook, because, you know, the generic answer is going to be PVC pipe, weighted gloves, you know, all that crap. A notebook and a pen is can totally transform everything. So, Connor, I'm going to jump in real quick because, again, that's a, you know, that's a kick the crap out of my answer. But one of the things, so uh, we had our guys, you know, keep notebooks and write stuff down as well, just, you know, telling them, hey, there is no wrong thing. Like, my personal notebook is filled with, like, me trying to draw out drills we can do and I can't draw worth a lick. So it's like stick figures and arrows pointing and terrible stuff. But what it also helps with kids I found is just if you're able to like to, like, here's my notebook of like random ideas and things I'm trying to work on and can show them that it helps kind of build, you know, makes you seem accountable, makes, you know, they know you're accountable on your end. They know you're working hard and they don't want to be, if you can build that environment, again, environment is everything. Where you've got guys just, and it doesn't need to be like, you know, you're taking notes or this isn't school, but just have notebooks where you are aware of what you're doing. 
nobody wants to be the kid who has a completely blank notebook who's just going through reps. Oh, absolutely. Well, before you guys go, Connor, can you start and give us some contact information in case any of our guys would, uh, any of our listeners would like to get in touch with you? Yeah, you know, you can always find me on Twitter. Uh, it's at Coach Doss, and it's Coach and then D-A-W-S. You can find me on Facebook, Connor Dawson. Just you'll see my picture on there. And uh, you can find me on Instagram. It's uh, at Coach underscore Doss. Shoot me a text or a call at any any time whatsoever. Gillen, I can give you my number, and you can put it in the footnotes of the, of the uh, podcast if you want. Sure. I don't really have a super great email, to be honest with you. I just don't check it that much. <laughs> uh, so any of those social media outlets or just give me a call or a text always almost works. So that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. All yeah. Right. For, for me, Twitter, RA underscore Parker. Um, and there's no, like, R, there's no periods or anything in RA. It's just like RA Dickey, basically. R A underscore Parker. Um, Pretty sure there's a period there, isn't there? In no, an R. Uh, well, an R A Dicky. Shut up, Connor. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I. So I'm sitting at quick story time on R A Parker. So I'm sitting at the ABCA, and Dan Hefner is going through this uh, this awesome presentation because he's unbelievable. And yeah. at the very end, he credits all of these different guys, and he credits R A Parker. So I, I shoot a picture of this and send it to Ryan, and I think he puts it on Twitter as, I'm legally changing my name to R.A. Parker now. <laughs> I mean, I might have to. I've had people call me R.A. It's weird. But yeah, find me on Twitter, R.A. underscore Parker, and just you know get in touch with me there, and I'll probably lead you know, uh, shooting DMs, emails, you know, get my phone number, blood type, social security number, um, <laughs> all that stuff within there, but... Yeah, I mean, I love, I mean, I love talking baseball. So don't, you know, don't be shy. You don't have to be super formal. Like, you don't have to lay out a resume. Dear Coach Parker, I like baseball, and here's why. No, just relax, have a conversation. Baseball's awesome. So, I got, I gotta, I gotta tell this story about how I actually met RA. Go ahead, because <laughs> it's very applicable. Applicable. Yeah, that's a word. Yeah. To uh, <laughs> uh, to what we're telling coaches in terms of reaching out to people, you got it. Is I was literally, you know, like I'm a 21 year old nobody from Kansas City, and I see this guy whose name is Success Leaves Clues, and I don't even know what his real name is. I just know that he says really cool stuff on Twitter, and this R.A. Parker guy says cool stuff, and Steve Carter, and Casey Fisk, and I, none of these guys follow me, you know, I even exist. And eventually I finally got a hold of Parker. I think I DM'd him three or four times just trying to talk to him. And there's this camp up at Northern Iowa Area Community College where Pete was at the time. And I messaged Parker. I'm like, hey, is there any way, like, like it would be okay for me to just come up and observe? And eventually he says, yeah, you know, you can come up and whatever, just ask Pete and, so I DMP and the same thing. So I drive five hours north to Mason City, Iowa. I get there to just watch and observe things. And I meet Parker and Steve Carter. And I'm sitting there. I say, hey, you know, you guys want me to throw BP or front toss? Just You just tell me and I'll help out. just want to listen. So I'm throwing front toss to BP. And at the end of the night, Parker's hotel situation felt like just totally crumbled or whatever. And sure enough, Ryan goes, hey, Doss, can I stay with you? <laughs> so I just met this dude. Right. He didn't stays. I didn't I sleep on like the, like the chair? In yeah, because I, like I got like a single bed. And Parker's sleeping on this chair, random chair at the Super 8 in Mason City, Iowa. <laughs> and uh, that, was the, that was the dawning of our, our friendship right there. And... That was how I got to know Pete. That's how I got to know Steve Carter, Travis Herger, Sean, you know, all those guys. And it was kind of crazy from there. And that's a crew. And I'm not surprised that Ryan did not have a hotel room booked for Mason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, <laughs> I drive five hours putting all my own money out there. And this dude who I came to watch, like, hey, can I crash? Can I crash at your place? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, you can, I guess. <laughs> Thanks for answering my DMs. 
Yeah, I think no I kidding. bought you. I think I bought you an orange, a, a orange monster though. Probably, I yeah. drink a lot of those, so I don't know. <laughs> Dude, upgrade the Rockstar, more caffeine, it's cheaper. <laughs> well, is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you guys go? Just be be creative, guys. Just be creative and reach out to people. You know, if make everything important to you and make it important to your players. If it's not important, it doesn't matter. It's just the bottom line. Yeah, I mean, that'd be the same thing. Find people you can talk to about baseball. Like, everyone, you know, the, some of the coaches listen to us and players don't have that mindset. Like, oh, I kind of make a name for myself, do it my way. Yeah, that don't work. Find people you can communicate with because you're going to be wrong. And that's cool because then you get to, you know, learn better ways you can, you know, be right or be more correct. You know, so stay of minded, stay creative. And for guys who really want it, hey, be annoying. Be the, be the person who's pestering coaches for info. My last thing is just a reminder to everybody that the Chiefs are going to win the Super Bowl this year and Patrick Mahomes can win the MVP. <laughs> yeah. So I guess I'll cut it right there. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. If you'd like to view the show notes or get in touch with me, you can find all of that information on our website at aotcpodcast.com or on the Texas High School Baseball Coaches Association app. Help us out by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show. But before you go, here's a quick word from our friends at Keeper of the Game. Hi, I'm Cam Wright, Keeper of the Game player rep for Frisco American League and Dallas Junior Wheelchair Mavericks. Thank you for supporting Keeper of the Game.